podcast. My name is Biggie Turner. You can find me online on Twitter at TurnerESQ. You can find my writing as a contributor at The Athletic and Sounder at Heart. And you can find my other writing at SoccerESQ.com. The soccer world continues to deal with the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, with leagues around the world having shut down. Here in the United States, MLS is in the middle of a suspension of its season, and U.S. soccer has suspended all competitions, including the U.S. Open Cup, until further notice. MLS, for its part, is hoping to restart league games by May 10th and is extending its moratorium on training on a week-by-week basis. Of course, the longer the suspension goes, the more consequences there are for all leagues in the form of canceled games and competitions. To discuss where we go from here, I'm joined by Jeff Carlisle, national writer for ESPN.com, to get his insight on how MLS is dealing with the pandemic, when we might see teams back on the field, and what the season might look like when we do. We also chat about the U.S. Soccer Federation, how they're handling the pandemic, and chat a little bit about the fallout from the resignation of President Carlos Cordero. It's a great interview. I hope you enjoy it. All right, joining me now, uh, someone who needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway, uh, Jeff Carlisle from ESPN.com, uh, writer and cover of all things MLS and U.S. soccer uh, out there in uh, San Jose, right? Um, Menlo Park, to be exact. Uh, it's about, I'd say Menlo Park's kind of in the middle between San Francisco and San Jose, so. Uh, excellent, excellent. On the peninsula, uh, as we locals call it. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, obviously, Jeff uh, again needs no introduction, um, and it's been covering MLS and U.S. soccer for for a number of years. And so I figured I'd give him a call up uh, in light of some of the announcements that had just just come down from uh, MLS regarding their season. And I figured we'll also delve in a little bit on the latest U.S. soccer com- uh, you know comings and goings. Um, and so. Yeah, first, I just wanted to ask you how, how all of this is kind of impacting your work as you are not, you know, I assume traveling right now. Yeah, I've, I've been home, uh, you know, for the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, it's a new normal that we're all getting used to. And um, you know, in addition to my duties as a, uh, a husband and a father and uh, a sports writer. I'm I'm now a, a third grade teacher <laughs> and a sixth grade teacher. So it's that's been, um, you know, that's just taken some getting used to just in terms of the time management aspect of it. Um, you know, obviously your, your kids' needs are immediate and you have to make sure that, you know, they're getting everything that they need first. And, um, you know, obviously I, I, there have been times where I've had to put my, my work in, in front, of, front of other things, but, um, you know, right now, as we kind of get used to this new situation here in the Bay Area, you know, that sometimes the work has to take a back seat. And, you know, you, you got to make sure your, your, your kids are, you know, as at ease with the situation as they could possibly be. And that's, that's not always easy, you know, with uh, the schools being closed and, you know, not being able to see friends and, and things of that sort. So it's, uh, again, we're, it's been the first week of kind of homeschooling. Uh, we're all getting used to it, but it is, uh, it's a huge challenge. And my wife's a public school teacher. So, I mean, I had huge respect for teachers to begin with, but um, you know, obviously when you're having to do that yourself, it, uh, it, it you know, you, get, you gain a whole new uh, respect for, you know, for what they do and, and for what they have to cope with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's it's going to be, you know, rough. Uh, we're recording this on Friday afternoon. Um, and for those who don't know, I'm up in Seattle. And, uh, you know, we're fully expecting a similar order to the one that's in California to come into come to play here soon, if not today. And it's going to, you know, provide an even bigger disruption on things because, uh, you know, my understanding you said, Jeff, that the one in uh, California has a uh, kind of a a deadline, not a deadline, but it's going to last for at least a couple of months, right? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is you know, they call it shelter in place here. And basically, you can go out and, and do essential things like get food or go to the pharmacy or things like that. But, um, you know, now they've, they've shut down the whole state. I mean, Governor Newsom announced that yesterday. So, yeah, we'll just, uh, yeah, you know, everyone's just going to have to try to get used to this. And this uh, actually segues nicely into what uh, MLS is doing. Um, we've had a couple of announcements. Um, you know, they initially uh, suspended the season for 30 days after they canceled a few games uh, for various teams uh, coming out of week two, essentially. Um, and now we've had some new news uh, in the form of 
an extension of their initial suspension. And, uh, you know, we just had an announcement today, again, we're recording this on Friday, that they're uh, extending the training moratorium. Uh, I was curious what you what you make of their kind of piecemeal approach to the training moratorium as opposed to the season being delayed for two months. Are they just kind of taking this week by week, uh, it, it sounds like? Yeah, and I think what they're trying to do is just, I think, do this incrementally, you know, just short-term increments. Is, you know, I, I think they're hesitating to say that, you know, it's going to be a week-by-week week thing. I mean, because obviously this is a fluid situation. And Well, just in talking to people at the league, I, I think what they're trying to achieve here is they're, they're just trying to maintain maximum flexibility. And I think what's also at play is that, you know, when this moratorium is lifted, uh, at least the way it's been described to me, is that they're not just going to go back into full team training right away. Um, I think the, the protocol that's been suggested to them is that uh, they begin with initial individual workouts and if everything progresses like they hope it will, then they'll ease into, you know, more team-wide activities, team-wide training sessions. So I, I think really, you know, certainly it's a, it's a quickly evolving situation. Obviously, the, 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 it's been escalated with the situation in Seattle with the team uh, support staff member who was tested positive and then a member of New York City FC's uh, sporting department tested positive as well. So I think these factors, these, these developments are basically pushing the league towards just, hey, let's, let's just stay as flexible as possible. Um, let's keep the, the players in market. And um, yeah, just uh, – Let's just do this a week at a time or maybe, you know, may, who knows, maybe it'll extend to two weeks at a time. But again, I think the key is this maximum flexibility. And again, there's going to, there's going to be an on-ramp back into team activities. It's not just going to be like going from zero to 60, you know, to the way it was two weeks ago. Yeah. So that's interesting. Uh, so let, let me follow up on that. So as far as, you know, setting aside the date of which they come back and we'll discuss that um, in a bit because they have put a hard date on when they're expecting to return. We'll see if that happens. But again, setting that aside for the moment, uh, what you're hearing is that they want to, let's assume that March 27th comes back and they're comfortable starting to ramp things up again. They're not going to start full, you know, say 18 to 25 players out there doing their normal training exercises. uh, It sounds like you think that it'll be more individual. Uh, Is that just, you know, players, starting to come in in groups, maybe the center backs all train together, maybe the forwards all train together, that kind of thing. Or uh, did they kind of outline what they think that will look like? Well, they said individual. So, I mean, I I think that means, you know, one at a time. I mean, I'm sure they're, they're going to gauge, you know, who's been, who's been staying fit and and who hasn't, Um, you know, I'm I'm sure that'll be different for different players. So I, you know, again, the word, they didn't say, you know, small groups. I mean, that, that term did not come up. I mean, certainly that, that might be an an area of of, of further exploration. Um, But they did say individual. So, you know, my understanding is that, again, it's going to be a a slow ramp up, you know, rather than, you know, just, just going full bore right away. So um, I I could, I could envision there being individual workouts. Okay. That went well. Everyone's feeling okay. You know, no, no one's getting sick or, you know, we don't have to like retrench and, 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 and take a step back. I mean, we can proceed to go forward, then it'll go into small groups. And then, then I think it will go to the full team. So, you know, I, I was talking to someone from, from the, you know, around the league earlier today too. And they said, well, you know, the, the, the moratorium or like the, the CDC guideline is, you know, no groups over 50. And so you think about, okay, you know, 28 players, coaches, support staff yeah. I mean, pretty soon that gets up to 50 so I, I think that's something that they're keeping in mind as well and um i think they're just proceeding with an abundance of caution which I, I think in this situation is completely the right move yeah i mean that's 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 fascinating to hear um and everything you say makes 100 percent sense but it also lends to questions about how long that would take them to get fully ramped up to start the season again um, if they're having to go from individuals, uh, doing a bit of a, maybe a, a slowdown there to make sure that, you know, no one, no one is infected. 
then you start to move into group sessions. You, you maybe, you know, slow it down again to make sure everything is okay. And then you maybe start to play a couple of you know, scrimmages or preseason games. And then you have to ramp it up back down again, again, to make sure there's no, uh, no infections. And then you think about maybe coming back to the season. It seems like there, it seems like based on that kind of scenario, you're, you would probably look at, you know, around four to six weeks of ramp up time before you got into competitive games. Yeah. I mean, they'd be not quite starting over, but I don't think all that far from starting over. So yeah, I mean, I think that would have to be the approach. Okay. Uh, so uh, I want to also ask you about, obviously, with this uh, postponement of the season, uh, you know, kind of looking at, you know, how the teams are handling this, talking to the Sounders, they have, this has obviously been a rough time for them, uh, you know, to say nothing of the fact that they have someone who was tested positive uh, and they're dealing with that kind of fallout and then just kind of the fallout of making sure that their employers are safe. But from an on-field and business perspective, I'm curious what you're hearing around the league uh, as far as how that's impacting things. Uh, when I talked uh, to Garth earlier this week, he basically said that, uh, again, you know, health and safety was first and foremost. But as we talked a little bit about uh, kind of the on, you know, business and on-field stuff, he said the impact isn't really acute right now because it's more of a postponement than a, uh, you know, cancellation of games. Uh, but I was curious if you're hearing anything about the league about, uh, you know, concern from various teams about how this could affect things uh, the longer it goes on. I think the message from the, from the league and the teams has been pretty consistent and that's, there's no economic impact because no games have been canceled. Yeah. You know, obviously we're, I think, you know, they're getting pretty close to that point. I mean, I, I can't see if they pass beyond that May 10th, you know, I think, at some point they're going to have to start cutting, you know, whether that's the U S open cup or whether that's the league's cup. I mean, at some point, maybe not league games are going to be canceled, but some games are going to have to be canceled. I mean, there's only so much room in the schedule. I think even if you push it out into December, um, you know, which obviously the league is looking at, um, you know, it's, it's going to be pretty jam packed. And again, something's going to have to give. Hey, this is Mickey cutting in real quick just to let you know that while we were recording this, Zoom was being a bit of a brat and the connection was super terrible. So we had to disconnect and do it the old-fashioned way by telephone. So the audio quality takes a small hit, but it's still a great interview. But I wanted to give you that warning that the audio does change going forward. Enjoy the rest of the interview. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the May 10th date that uh, MLS has announced as when they'd like to be back in session uh what are you hearing first of all about that date being realistic and if it isn't realistic where is the kind of drop dead point where this viability of the season comes into play because you know there are only a certain amount of dates the further you go along uh before you're you know playing 10 12 18 games uh is that a point is there a point where you think at mls decides that it's just not it's not going to happen up 
you know, we have to come up with a crazy, unique season format. And, you know, is it just a knockout competition? Is it, you know, you know how, do they, how do they try to do that? So, again, I think we're looking at midsummer, uh, maybe even a little later into it. But, again, if, if you take those three months, August, September, October, and, and then into November, um, yeah, you could, you could cram a lot of games in there. Um, you know, maybe you only limit it to the Western Conference. Or, or to, you know, the particular conference that a team uh, resides in. But, again, this is all, this is all speculation. And, um, you know, it's obviously the league is hoping that they don't have to cancel games and they hope they can reschedule games that, that have been postponed. But um, I think the window is getting narrower and narrower. I think for sure you're looking at competitions like the League's Cup and the U.S. Open Cup, I mean, I think those would be obviously the, the first to fall by the wayside. And once those do, you know, then I think you're able to get a better sense of, of how much of a regular season MLS could cram into to the remaining months that, that exist between now and, say, the end of the year, or at least before the Christmas holidays. So, um, but it's, it's not pleasant to think about, that's for sure. I mean, obviously, this was a, a season that, was going to be a celebration of the league, given that this yeah. is the 25th year, and you know there was going to be so much momentum. I mean, Miami coming on board and Nashville, excuse me, having a great crowd. Uh, you know, in terms of their first home game, so it's uh, you know so much is going to be lost. But you know, there, again, there's only so, so much that you can control in a situation like this, and uh, it's going to be up to MLS to, to try to make the most of it. Yeah, and you brought up an interesting uh, point uh, about some, you know, maybe they make some fairly drastic changes uh, to the way the season is played with, you know, knockout tournaments or knockout formats and, uh, you know, limiting games to in-conference. Um, your colleague Taylor Twelman actually raised a uh, an interesting idea, which was to get MLS to essentially use this to get on the European calendar. I should say most most leagues follow the European calendar. There are certainly exceptions that uh, that don't. Um, have you? I was wondering what you thought of that idea generally. And it, you know, I know MLS has been reluctant to do that for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, number one of it, which is the disparate climates in the United States, making it difficult to play in northern climates in November, uh, December, and January, and February for that matter. Uh, I can't imagine that that is something that they are wanting to do uh but curious if you've either heard anything about it or what your general thoughts are on what taylor had to say um i mean certainly if the league really wanted to do that deep down i mean this would be the prime opportunity to try to do it yeah um but i don't think that changes the realities on the ground namely that there are so many teams that reside in parts of the country where the winter climate just is not conducive to, to holding games. Um, you know, I mean, I can remember freezing Mary Randolph at an MLS Cup final in Kansas City. Oh, yes. And certainly there are places that have much harsher winter climates than Kansas City does. Um, so I just, you know, I, I think to me it, it's, it's just, it's a, you know, I don't want to say it's a non-starter because, you know, obviously the league could be pushed in that direction. But you're talking about also omitting some of the best weather months in this country. You know, obviously Seattle knows uh, Seattle knows well about that. You're 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 foregoing a lot of June, all of July, and um, and part of August. So, and and. Those are months where games do not usually get canceled. I mean, sometimes you get the crazy rainstorm or tornado warning, but you know, for the most part, those games are going to happen. And um, I don't think MLS is at a point where fans are, as you know, Don Garber is fond of saying, agnostic about the weather to be able to attend games when when the weather's lousy. So um, I I don't see that happening. Um, I think. You know, like I said, the, the, the reasons not to do it are still there. And so uh, I, I think that would be that would be a tough direction for MLS to go in. Yeah, and then, you know, that's, you know, as you said, if they had wanted to do that, they could have done that years ago. Um, nothing has changed about, from what I've seen, about their, you know, kind of philosophy on that, on that issue to make them want to do that, especially at this point. 
even with more Southern teams coming in and there's a bunch of kind of things you could try to do as far as starting the season off in warm weather sites or cold weather sites, depending on, you know, what time of year you're talking about. But, um, I guess uh, on one follow-up on that, uh, I don't know if you saw Doug McIntyre's report that they are considering a warm-weather MLS site, neutral site, for MLS Cup if they end up having to play in December, which seems to be uh, likely at this point. Even I think MLS in their release acknowledged that they're looking at a December uh, date. That seems like a good uh, you know way to go for this year is to just move it to a neutral warm-weather site. You, you got Atlanta, you got L- L.A., uh, yeah, Houston, I suppose, although, you know, given their attendance issues uh, and, you know, just trying to get people excited about MLS. I don't know if you'd want to have a, uh, a neutral site game there, but uh, does seem like a, uh, a reasonable way to handle this particular situation. Uh, had, go back to neutral game site. Well, I think it would make sense on a few levels, um, just in terms of being able to plan. I mean, you know, the tricky part with, with not having a neutral game site is that, you know, this is obviously one of the biggest events of, of, on the MLS calendar, and it's a time to, to meet with sponsors, to, you know, engage, you know, with, uh, you know, with, with, with different fans and, and uh, create a lot of, you know, attention that gets placed on the league. But, again... <laughs> If for some reason you do not get a, a marquee team to, to participate, mm-hmm. um, you know, then then it could backfire spectacularly. I mean, I, I was there in Toronto when FC Dallas and the Colorado Rapids played, and <laughs> that was the catalyst for the league saying, we're never doing this again in terms of having <laughs> a neutral site. Um, because when you get, you know, two unglamorous teams, that's, you know, the, the interest dwindles. So, um I mean, it, it, it just depends on the availability. Um, you know, certainly, you know, I, and I, when I say availability, I mean availability of venues. I mean, certainly there's been issues with New York City FC. Um, you know, there have been issues with, uh, you know, the, any team that's like a, a co-tenant with an NFL team. Yeah. So you might have issues in Atlanta. You might have issues in Seattle. So, you know, that might be what they're trying to avoid. Um but again, there's 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 downside as well. Um, now, granted, I think MLS is increasingly becoming a league of haves and have-nots, and so I think you're fairly certain that you're going to get you know uh, a, a, a glamour, for lack of a better word, high-profile team that you know at least on one side makes the MLS Cup final. So, um, but again, there, there's risk. There, there, there's risk if you go that, that neutral site route. Yeah, um, absolutely. And as you rightly point out, uh, the MLS Cup in Toronto with Dallas and uh, Colorado was the catalyst for them to do that. And uh, moving to the the you know the home site of the highest seat has has paid off very well for MLS, uh, especially with some of the recent uh, teams. Obviously, Atlanta uh, hosting MLS Cup, Seattle hosting MLS Cup before sold out crowds. I can't imagine they want to risk if they can help it. Uh, you know, being in a neutral site where you don't have a sold-out house because that is definitely a bad look for your championship game, even in the context of an extraordinary situation uh, like this. So um, just to, to circle back real quick on uh, the ramp-up to this uh, this season, um, you talked a little bit about that it's not going to be a, a quick restart to this season. Uh what do uh, you know, do you see them as, or do you see it as them having a number of preseason games, or is that kind of a still far afield given where we are? Like uh, again, if we're starting over essentially from scratch, uh, you know, how how are they going to get these guys fit in time to have what is reasonably quality soccer on the field? Well, I think they're going to have to have at least a few. Uh, you know, closed-door scrimmages, you know, exhibition games um, of, of some sort, whether that's MLS against MLS or whether they, you know, go up against some USL sides. Um, you know, they're, they're going to have to have some games like that. I mean, you think about it, so it, it'll be, have been two months, between, you know, from the time that 
a, a competitive game was last played for, for, for these teams. So, um, yeah, I would think that they'd have to have practice games of some sort uh, just to kind of, you know, get the, the competitive juices flowing again and, and, and you know, just kind of get the, the players, you know, used to, team, to game situations. So, for sure, I, I think that would be a, a smart way to go. Yeah, actually, I think I saw somewhere that uh, you know moving the league leagues cup up to a preseason and just you know working out some deal with Liga MX to do scrimmages that way could be a way to get uh, you know players some time out of you know get fans you know kind of interested you know you know the league's cup MLS wanted to tout as a you know a serious competition with real stakes at play, but. As you said, if if it's going to go away because they're just uh, simply on enough dates, maybe just move it up to a, a preseason exhibition and you know you know take it from there. I think that would be difficult, though. I mean, yeah. just in terms of you know, just securing venues yeah. and, and securing TV time. I mean, there's 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 television to be considered in this as well. So um, yeah, so I think I think making that a preseason tournament at this stage I think would be extraordinarily difficult if, if not impossible um, but uh, you know the league is going to have to be nimble so yeah. we'll see how how how, uh, how quick they're able to pivot on some of these things but I, I think using that as a preseason I, I, I think that's asking too much yeah and actually you just raised a good point about about television and that is certainly a massive impact that they're looking at uh, they started off with some pretty good ratings for uh, the start of the MLS season, and now they're just kind of in a holding pattern. Now they have you know dates that they have already scheduled with uh, TVs and the various windows, but have you heard anything or uh, what? Do you, what's the impact of this delay on the TV deal, especially with other leagues, you know, postponing games as well? Once you get into the winter season. That starts. It things start to get really crowded as far as TV windows are concerned. They they move this up to kind of you know in part get out of the way of some of that stuff. Um, but you know now if there's extending the season, then you're gonna have to deal with all that stuff again. Uh, any any uh, have you heard anything about you know how the TV side is is uh, is going or how they're dealing with the TV side of things? I haven't. Um, but you know obviously that time of year when you're when you're going into early to mid December. Um, there's a lot of college football going on. Um, obviously, the NFL season is still going on. Um, so college basketball going to play a role, and uh, and that might also be factoring into the, the discussion about um, you know going to a neutral site. I mean, it you know it's MLS just might make the decision to say, hey, we want to be sure that we can get this building on this date in this time slot, and. And, and, and try to take it from there, you know, rather than kind of have all these moving pieces about, you know, gee, what's which, which NFL teams are still involved. I mean, obviously baseball will be over by then, but, um, you know, what, you know what, what college bowl games in terms of television might we be going up against? So, I mean, all of that, there are a lot of moving parts, and, um, you know, we're just going to have to see how, how the league tries to, to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely, and yeah, they're, as you said, they're going to have to be nimble. Uh, I suppose one s- slight benefit is there's probably some additional windows in in December between when the regular season ends and the championship games are played, and when the bowl season begins. And they did that before, obviously, uh, holding MLS Cup around December eighth, when usually the Army Navy game was the only uh, college football game in town. And they held it on Saturday, so that eliminated the NFL. So they may end up having to try to find one of those date, uh, one of those Saturdays again. And then, as you said, look for the warm weather site to mitigate any potential uh, uh, cold weather fiascos like we had in Kansas City or, or Toronto as well. Yeah, I think one of those things to, to point out is that you know the CBA says there has to be six weeks off <laughs> yeah. between seasons. So. You know, there's been, you know, I think there's, and it, obviously people are just spitballing here and kind of floating trial balloons, but, um, you know, the MLS season could not go much past mid-December um, or even, you know, early December um, just because there, there's that that uh, that requirement that there's, you know, the players do get six weeks off from the end of, you know, from the MLS Cup final on. So, um, and it sounds like, you know, obviously, 
there's a good chance that the league, you know, the league season could be extended. So, um, so all of that's going to have to be taken into consideration. But I mean, I think there was some talk about, hey, could it push into 2021? That I don't see happening. You know, for the reason that I just mentioned. Yeah. And actually, yeah, it's interesting you raised the CBA because obviously we just had it, uh, you know, completed uh, somewhat surprisingly. But uh, it was good news at the time uh, that it got completed well ahead of the season. And then, of course, a uh, coronavirus hit. Um, the, as far as I know, the CBA has not been fully completed. They have a, basically a, a term sheet or a memorandum of understanding. And you know they're they're hashing out the the finer points of the deal. Uh, obviously, the CBA can range in the you know page numbers of around the 80s, uh, and so they've got a lot of stuff to do there. Um, I'm, I'm interested. You know, you, you may or may not know, but um, the impact of the coronavirus on you know finalizing the CBA, I, I would assume that's going to cause things to be delayed as far as getting it ratified, and may cause some alterations to some of the provisions in you know. To wit, the six-week, uh, you know, requirement of a break between the end of the one MLS season and the beginning of another. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that that's necessarily going to impact things. I mean, I don't know that these things are are worked on in person. Um, I think it's something that, you know, people could work on remotely. You know, in terms of, of the the union office. Um, and, you know, I, I could see, you know, players, you know, staying in their home markets to, to actually vote and, and, or even discuss, and, you know, you know the, the final terms. Um, you know, so I don't know if that would necessarily be impacted. I mean, it, it, I think, it, you know, the, the gating factor would have to be, you know, how much work did the union get done in conjunction with the league office while all this is going on? Because, you know, as we talked about earlier, you know, individuals are having to, to deal with, with, with family responsibilities and, and, and whatnot. So um, that might have a, might play a little bit of a factor. But, you know, I, I, think, I think the CBA could still get done um, even while this, you know, a, you know, a lot of the, 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 uh, the well, quarantining, for lack of a better word, but the shelter in place is the word I was looking for. Yeah. I think while that's going on, I think I think some work can still get done. So I mean, I certainly don't see that grinding to a halt, and uh, you know, I, I still think some progress could be made there. Yeah, yeah, I, I fully expect that the the actual deal will eventually be ratified. But it'd be interesting to see if they uh, make any adjustments or modifications to the deal itself. Uh, you know, as a result of of what we're dealing with right now. But I want to uh, you know kind of switch gears and talk a little bit about before I let you go uh, U.S. soccer. Um, obviously, in the wake of the uh, coronavirus pandemic, we've had some other news, uh, mainly that uh, Carlos Cordero has resigned as the president um, after uh, in the women's national team equal pay lawsuit, some charged filings in the uh, summary judgment motion, which is a motion to basically find in favor of one side or the other uh, before you even get to trial, uh, some charged language regarding the uh, physical and uh other skills of the women's team, essentially making it so that the Federation could, uh, you know, justify not paying them equally. Uh, that caused a, uh, a firestorm, I think it's fair to say, and resulted in Carlos losing his job. Uh, I wanted to get your general thoughts on, on his resignation. It seemed like it was a fait accompli once uh, the backlash started. Um, and, you know, it just, again, it seemed like something that was going to happen uh, once, once those filings became public. Yeah, I mean, I think Cordero was left in an untenable situation. I mean, I think, you know, he he is the face of the Federation. Um, and once those filings, uh, you know, kind of were made public and began to be dissected and just the, the infuriating language, you know, was, was actually kind of picked apart and, and, and examined, you know, it left him... Yeah, he, he was he just, I, I think it was always going to be a situation where heads were going to have to roll, and usually that starts with the top. I think what's going to be interesting going forward is, you know, how much the, how much responsibility the board ends up taking. Um, yeah. You know, obviously, Cindy Cohn, Cindy Paolo Cohn is, is being put in a, just a, probably an even more difficult situation because she's got to try to clean up this mess. Um, and I've heard that there is, I mean, I've heard it called an executive committee. I've heard it called a transition committee. But, um, you know, uh, 
Patty Hart and, and Chris Aarons and Tim Turney are all on that committee to try to kind of help Cone navigate through these first few months. And, and Patty Hart is someone who has experience being a CEO. So I, I think in terms of some of the corporate governance that's going to go on, that's something where Patty Hart can help out. Um, but it's, you know, one thing that, that, that I think Cohn said in her initial statement was that, you know, the processes by which that happened have to be looked at. And I think that's always going to come back to the board. I mean, yeah. what's, you know, I'm not, it's not my expectation that every person on the board was going to read every single filing, yeah. you know, all you know, thousands of pages, but that had to be somebody's responsibility. And, and you'd think it would be Lydia Walkie, who was, you know, the, the chief legal officer for the USSF. Um, and, but, but what processes were surrounding her? I mean, obviously she reported to somebody on the board. I don't think it was just Carlos. And so I think, I think it's a time that demands transparency on the part of the Federation to say, these were our processes and these were, this is where they broke down. And, you know, this is what we're going to do to make sure it happens again. I mean, there've been calls for wholesale changes on the board. But I, I don't think that's going to happen. Not the way these, these, these directors are elected. I mean, some of them are independent directors like Patty Hart, like Lisa Carnoy, and they are voted on by, um, you know, the, the, the National Council. But, you know, you've got other board members representing different organizations within the Federation. So I, I don't think it's... You know, it's a, it's a little unwieldy. It's, it's, it's kind of like asking an aircraft carrier to, to make a, you know, a pinpoint turn. I mean, I just don't think that's how these, this, this organization operates. Um, now, whether someone wants to make proposals at, at the next AGM to change that, that's a different story. But I think for now, I don't, I don't see any wholesale changes to the board being made, and I don't see anybody giving up their position. So, um it's a huge challenge for, for Cone, no doubt about it. And uh, But again, like I mentioned earlier, it's a time for transparency. It's, it's a time for, I think, the, 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 the board to kind of come clean and say, this is how we were doing things, and uh, this is what we're going to change. Yeah, and yeah, just to follow up on that, because I, you know, I've talked to, uh, to U.S. Soccer um, as well, and one thing uh, they noted to me is that, you know, and should be pointed out, as you rightly note, that the board had a lot more to do with this than Cordero, or as much, I should say. Um, and no one at this point has has held their hand up and said, I'm behind this, or I, I approve this strategy. Um, and, you know, again, this is this filing was the second filing in a series of summary judgment motions. And the 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 theory behind their case was in the initial summary judgment motion. And in fact, it goes back to when they were deposing members of the women's national team. I think it was Carly Lloyd who said, uh, let's fight it out uh, when asked about, uh, you know, uh, whether the men could beat the women or the women could beat the men. And so that strategy stretches back to, you know, at least December of 2019. And, it was only the summary judgment filing, uh, you know, the second summary judgment filing that that raised the furor. But this, you know, again, the board, I think you're correct, needs to to be a bit more transparent in in their role in this filing. You know, again, I've also heard that they only had hours to review the second filing with the offending language. But again, that doesn't explain why they were on board with the strategy in the first place. Well, it also doesn't explain. I mean. I think it, this was a situation where the Federation needed to put its foot down and say, we are the client. Mm-hmm. You work for us, not yeah. the other way around. I mean, I, you know, just in talking to people, I, I get a sense that, um, you know, the law firm, uh, you know, that was originally there, I know now it's played them the Watkins. I think it was Safeworth Sarp, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, Safeworth is the, uh, yep, the yeah, primary but, name. You know, and I think, you know, you know, I've heard, it's not confirmed, but some issues were raised and, 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 the, and the attorneys, you know, basically said, we know what we're doing. Um, I can confirm, I, I, I can confirm what it, you've heard. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think that it was a situation where um, this level of scrutiny about court filings is, 
know, I, I think it's, I think it kind of caught the, the law firm a little bit off guard. I don't, I don't think they realized just, you know, how much scrutiny these, these filings were going to come on, under. And so uh, I think there was some arrogance there. Uh, I think a lot of arrogance yeah. there about their approach. We're the, we're the, we're the professionals. We're, we know what we're doing. Um, and what they did was to kind of take a scorched earth policy to, to the law and, and try to argue every last point, and it, it backfired spectacularly on them. Yeah, yeah, and let's uh, talk a little bit about the uh, the backlash. And just you talked a little bit about uh, what Cindy Cohn has to do, um, and so what do you, what do you see as as her primary role? Is it is it to kind of facilitate a settlement uh, to the best of her ability? Again, she's not the one who who would rubber stamp the deal. That would go before the board, obviously. Uh, but you know, she's got a role to play in mending fences uh, and also trying to maybe get a CEO in place who can kind of oversee this uh, more fully. So, again, what do you see as her role, and and what impact do you think this would have on settlement talks, um, assuming they resume at some point? You know, it's it's tough. I mean, I mean, her role is obviously she's got to try to heal the relationship between the federation and the women's national team. I think she's got to try to heal the relationship between the Federation and the fans yeah. and sponsors. I mean, she's got, there, there's just an awful lot of fences that she needs to mend, and that's that's not going to be easy. Um, I do think, you know, there have been calls from a lot of people to say, hey, settle this. <laughs> and it, it, it takes two sides yeah. to want a settlement, and, and what one side is willing to agree to is, is not the same as the other. I mean... The question is, is there a middle ground? I mean, certainly a lot of the public statements, you know, from, from the players are that they're looking forward to trial. And so, you know, it's, and I've heard that, you know, the, the Federation tried to reach out and, and tried to, to engage in settlement talks and, and that those attempts were rebuffed. Um, but, you know, it's, I, I don't, I don't see that really changing now that Carlos Cordero was gone. So, uh, I think a settlement is easier said than done. Um, if that can be, if a settlement can be reached, I think that's great. I think that would be a huge achievement for Cohn and, and allow the Federation to move forward a little bit. But um, if it were that easy, it would have happened already. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, yes, a, a settlement would be great, but I, I don't think it's as easy to get to that point as, as a lot of people are, are, are implying. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, my understanding is that, like you, the uh, the Federation has tried to reach out, um, have not as of yet received uh, any overtures in response. Um, and the interesting thing about this, you know, the settlement talks about meeting halfway, of course, is that the women were asking or are asking for upwards of $60 million, um, you know, in damages. Um, and then there's, you know, some punitive stuff as well that could come into play. Um, and when, you know, my understanding is that the Federation, when they were, you know, initially talking about settling the case, you know, put the damages between 10 and 15 million, um, assuming the court were to agree with the women. That's what they kind of estimated them at. Um, and they never got close uh, with the women in those negotiations. And, of course, now the women, you would presume, think that they have much more leverage, um, which, to your point, explains maybe why they've rebuffed it and why they're looking forward to trial, because they think they can press their advantage um, and so that all of that you know, lends to a recipe of, you know, we'll see you in court. Of course, you know, there is a chance that the men or the Federation win this case, um, at which point uh, you have to wonder what, what the reaction would be if the case is dismissed on summary judgment or after a trial. Yeah, I mean, it's the Federation isn't, they've got some arguments. I mean, you certainly... Uh, you know, the, the, they keep talking about rate of pay, and certainly I think there's some improvements that can be made in that. But, you know, certainly the the, the, the salaries that the, and the benefits that the contracted players get, I mean, that, you know, where does that factor in? I mean, that's that's always what made this, I think, such a, a difficult thing to try to, you know, to, to try to figure out is that I think, I think everyone, I, I think most people are, in favor of the concept of equal pay. Yeah. But when it comes to the respective CBAs, you know, how do you reconcile that? How, you know, what does that look like? Um, and certainly I think 
there are some some easy things, you know, especially when, when you look at the the rate of, of you know appearance bonuses, you know, for friendlies and the like. Um, you know, certainly that that seems to be you know low hanging fruit. But you know, how do you get to the to the, the nitty gritty details? I mean, that's again, that's that's what's made this a really Yeah. And, you know, there's a couple of things, you know, related to that. Uh, Number one, you know, the World Cup prize money disparity for winning first place. Uh, That's that's been a huge source of contention. Um, And then one thing that, you know, I know the Federation, it's kind of a a, a bee in their bonnet is is the role that the men's national team is playing in this. Uh, I'm sure the Federation would love to. In fact, I know they would love to to have, you know, both parties, the women's national team and the men's national team, kind of negotiate these deals together and just kind of split things down the middle, you know, however you want. Um, but, you know, I know they've expressed frustration that the men have basically been sitting on the sidelines, you know, issuing a couple of press releases here, but haven't really engaged in trying to get this thing done, uh, probably because the men, uh, once they, they're waiting for the women to negotiate their CBA or renegotiate it, and then they, the men would come in and ask for that plus 20% or something like that. So I know there's frustration with how the men have handled this as well. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're getting it from, a, they're getting hit from a lot of different yeah. Um But, you know, the, the fact remains that the men have been operating without a CBA for over a year. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a good place to be, uh, you know, if you're the Federation. Um, just, I, I think they've, they've alienated a lot of constituents. And, um, and yet they, they, you know, the, the voting membership <laughs> elected an insider to, to follow an insider in, in Sunil Gulati. So, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's just such a difficult situation that the Fed finds himself in. And, you know, you hope that, that Cindy Parlow Cohn is the person to kind of, to bring everyone together. Um, you know, well, I've heard good things about her. I mean, I talked to Steve Gans, and he, you know, he talked about how prepared she was, you know, during uh, when he when she interviewed him on behalf of the Athletes Council uh, in the run up to the 2018 election. And um, but again, I, I think you know it, it's a very new kind of role for her. I mean, obviously she's had experience in leadership roles, but I think you know, obviously coaching a team is is, is very different than than, than managing a non-for-profit um, is just different dynamics. So, uh, you know, you hope that people like Patty Hart give her the help she needs and that, you know, she's able to, to move the situation forward. Yeah, yeah. And so a couple last things since you raised the uh, uh, the election. Uh, well, we're going to have another one in 2021 um, and then another one in 2022. Uh, and I, I, I presume that her potential success is is dependent on a couple of things. Uh, number one, how she handles kind of things uh, as far as, you know, the lawsuit, uh, equal pay lawsuit, and uh, how she's able to repair that. And then also there is, you know, the the, the various councils uh, have, have their say in the election and the pro council, which uh, MLS is a part of, has, has disparate uh, power, as voting power because they have so few members are able to vote as a block. Do you see, uh, you know, as we come into the 2021 election, uh is she, is she likely the front runner uh, based on where things are now and the difficulty in, in electing a quote unquote outsider? You know, I think the next six months are going to, are going to reveal, are going to reveal that. I mean, if she's able to point to some successes, you know, like settling this lawsuit, I think that would give her uh, an immense boost. And, you know, it's, it's, it's easier being the incumbent. Um, and I, I think that would uh, give her a lot of support, um, you know, if, she, if, if there's some accomplishments that she's able to point to. Um, but, you know, it's, then there's the question of whether she wants the job. I mean, yeah. I, I think she's been kind of thrust into this. Um, and, you know, I don't want to say against her will, because obviously she ran for, for USSF vice president. Mm-hmm. I mean, she kind of knew what she was getting into there. But... Um, you know, it's, it's a very different kind of job. And so, you know, obviously that, that's going to be, you know, she's going to figure that out over the course of the next, uh, you know, 10 months or so. You know, is this something that she enjoys? I mean, is this something that, that she 
that that really is uh, is going to energize her. So uh, I think there's a, there's an awful lot of questions. I, I, I think just again because she's, she'll be the incumbent, she has the advantage, but um, that advantage will be boosted considerably again if there's some accomplishments that she can point to. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll see what happens there. So last question, um, just to kind of bring this back uh, full circle. Uh, U.S. soccer is obviously dealing with uh, the coronavirus uh, as well, given that they postponed uh, the Olympic qualifiers, all qualifiers. And in, in fact, uh, basically all on-field competitions are postponed until further notice. Uh, I wanted to ask you specifically about the U.S. Open Cup. You referenced it uh, briefly when we were talking about MLS. But, you know, uh, the reports that USL have asked uh, out of the U.S. Open Cup to focus on the regular season. One would presume MLS is making a similar request. It seems unlikely that that tournament's going to happen. I'm wondering if you've heard anything or is it just kind of common sense that with a May startup date at the earliest, there just simply aren't enough dates uh, to allow teams to focus on their regular season competitions as well as the Open Cup? Yeah, I, I, I haven't heard anything specific yet. Um, but again, it's, you know... I mean, let's face it, MLS for a lot of years has treated the Open Cup almost like a nuisance. I mean, granted, there are individual teams that that took it very seriously, the Sounders among them. Yeah, at least uh, early, at least early in their existence, not so much yeah, lately. Yeah, and so, uh, but I think, you know, a lot of times you see these, these Open Cup games played at alternate venues, and uh, or the MLS teams are having to go on the road. So uh, as long as it doesn't, cut massively into the bottom line, I, I could see the USOC being sacrificed. I mean, it's just, um, it'd be a shame because it's, it's managed to be held every year since 1913. Um, but again, I don't, you know, and, and you're including periods of war and, and yeah. everything else. So, um, but again, we're, we're, we're talking about an event on U.S. soil. I, I think that's the big difference. And, and so, you know, I, I think, I, you know, I, I could easily see that, that tournament, you know, just, just being a, one of the, the really hard trade-offs that would have to be made, you know, I'm referring to the cancellation of that tournament. So it would not surprise me at all to see it uh, not held this year. Yeah, it just, it just seems an unlikely under the circumstances. And I'm sure U.S. soccer is exploring what they can do to, to make that, uh, you know, to have the event. But, Again, I, I can't see them doing it without, uh, you know, MLS or, or and or USL teams. Removing either one of those from the equation, you know, is cutting back, you know, 26 or 30, what, 33, 34 teams. Um, and at that point, you're left with essentially an amateur competition and maybe NISA. Uh, and that just, that doesn't seem like, that's not a competition that anyone's going to watch. And it doesn't seem financially viable either. I would agree. Yep. I would agree. All right. Well, I think that's a on that depressing note. I think that's a great place to uh, <laughs> to uh, end it. Uh, Jeff, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, to chat with me. And obviously, everyone knows where they can find you. But uh, you know, want you let everyone know where they can find you. Yeah, uh, just ESPN.com/soccer uh, is where you're going to find my, my my pieces, and then uh, at Jeffrey Carlisle on Twitter. Uh, I think if you look in those two places, you're bound to find me. Excellent, excellent. Thanks again, Jeff, and I will uh, definitely talk to you soon. All right, anytime, Mickey.